Welcome to Absence Management Perspectives, a DMEC podcast. The Disability Management Employer Coalition, or DMEC as we're known by most people, provides focused education, knowledge, and networking opportunities for absence and disability management professionals. DMEC has become a leading voice in the industry and represents more than 16,000 professionals from organizations of all sizes across the United States and Canada. This podcast series will focus on industry perspectives and provide the opportunity to delve more deeply into issues that affect DMEC members and the community as a whole. We're thrilled to have you with us and hope you will visit us at dmec.org to get a full picture of what we have to offer, from webinars and publications to conferences, certifications, and much more. Let's get started and meet the people behind the processes. Hello, and welcome to Absence Management Perspectives, a DMEC podcast. I'm Heather Grimshaw, Communications Manager for DMEC. I'm here today with Dr. Dan Jolive from The Standard to talk about workplace mental health, a topic he explores in his feature story published in the latest issue of At Work magazine. The issue is dedicated to workplace mental health, which has been a hallmark of DMEC's education and programming since the association's inception 30 years ago. Dr. Jolive, would you please introduce yourself and we'll dig into this important topic? Sure. I'm uh, Dr. Dan Jolive. I'm the Workplace Possibilities Practice Consultant at The Standard, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I've worked in behavioral health since 1980, including about 22 years as a direct service provider, most recently as a child psychologist. But I also worked in health insurance for 20 years with a lot of overlap. And I joined The Standard six years ago as the behavioral health director. Now I'm the company's subject matter expert on stay-at-work services, return-to-work services, uh, healthcare integration, and behavioral health conditions. Well, we're definitely talking to the right person here when it comes to mental health. So I think one of my first questions for you is, when did employers start to invest more time and energy into employee mental health and well-being? Well, that's a great uh, question. Employers have really been focusing on mental health and substance use issues for decades, uh, since the 1940s when employee assistance programs and employee fitness programs began. But really in the 1980s is when those started focusing more on mental health and substance use disorders. Um, so it's really in the last 30 to 40 years that this has been a, a major concern. And that's unfortunately coincided with a, a number of trends that are going the opposite direction that we want, what we're calling the uh, diseases of despair, meaning that uh, since about 1999, we've seen huge increases in the number of people who are dying from alcohol-related causes, from suicide, and from drug overdoses. And all of that uh, has had an impact on the workplace over the last 20 22 years. Um, so this has been a, a, an issue that employers have been aware of, but the pandemic has made it much more uh, urgent, much more of a concern that employees are saying they want help, they want support. Um, we found in our uh, 2019 survey, the Behavioral Health Impact Study, we found that the number one thing employees wanted from their companies was a workplace culture that supported their mental wellness. So 
it's become more of an issue. Now, as of 2020, uh, more than 80% of large corporations and more than 50% of small businesses offer some kind of wellness program. And those have been driven in large part by increases in chronic conditions, including depression. And large employers are typically leading the way because they have the buying power to require more targeted solutions. Uh, for example, I know Boeing, which is a company I have no connection with, but I know Boeing has required their health insurance to offer integrated primary care, for example, in which primary care clinics include behavioral health professionals on site so that people who go see their, their PCP can also see a therapist or a psychiatrist there. And when a large company pushes for something like that, often smaller companies benefit as well because any uh, company that's insured by that insurance company then will have greater access to integrated primary care. One type of support that's been proven effective is peer support in which specific employees volunteer to be trained as peer support specialists so workers can reach out to their co-workers when they're struggling. And those problems are right now quite common amongst first responders, especially law enforcement professionals, but they're becoming more common among hospitals, healthcare centers, and schools and universities are starting to develop them as well. And we, we find that having peers who can talk with you, not as a therapist, but as someone who can understand and support you and also direct you to resources that may be helpful, we know the research has shown that reduces people's feelings of isolation, their feelings of hopelessness. It increases the likelihood that someone will seek uh, appropriate treatment and support. Um, and that, that's a resource that I think we're going to be seeing more and more because the United States is in a long-term deficit when it comes to behavioral health professionals. We just don't have enough. We've got a shortage. And utilizing peer supports to help get people treatment early uh, at the sort of the right level that they need will help us to bridge that gap. One of the things I'm interested in from an employer vantage point is whether organizations or employers look for a return on investment to the efforts that they're making into expanding access to that whole health or mental health piece? And if so, if you're willing to share some guidance on that topic. Surprisingly, there's been less interest, or there's some evidence, there's less interest in return on investment associated with wellness programs in recent years. That had been a sort of driving topic for at least probably two decades. But I think it's been very difficult to demonstrate ROI rigorously. And also there's a sense in which more workers just expect to be offered these benefits. There's more of a sense that the, that's uh, the, the, the least an employer can offer. But unfortunately, that can lead to companies taking a sort of check the box box approach, and that leads to uh, suboptimal outcomes and wasted money. So I'm a very big proponent for uh, tracking the impact of your, your benefits. And my opinion, my experience has been that employers really should expect reports that support the impact of the programs offered by their vendors. Uh, at the very, least, the very least, 
uh, reports that compare company outcomes to their historical results and to industry benchmarks. So they can see whether their programs are active, uh, actually effective, whether they're having the impact they want, whether they're getting better or worse, um, where there are opportunities to improve. And ROI statistics are important, but they also have to include explanations to help benefits directors clearly understand what's being measured. My advice to benefits directors and people who are getting reports on their benefits outcomes is to keep asking questions until you truly understand what you're being told. If you don't understand, keep asking until you do. What's the type of evidence that would show that investments in an employee's mental health and well-being are effective? Well, it, it really depends on the type of service you're offering. So, for example, when I worked managing and overseeing EAPs, we looked primarily at the utilization. What, what percentage of people, what percentage of employees or people who were eligible for the services actually received uh, treatment and for what reason? So we could say, you know, 5% of your employees are getting treatment, half of them they're doing that for personal issues, half of them are doing it for you know, family issues. Um, and it's hard, but it's possible to also look at how does that impact your health insurance spend? Because the idea is if you can uh, if you can head off problems before they get worse, that then maybe people won't need to, uh, say, go see a psychiatrist for medication or go to therapy. Um, so the ideal is that you have some data that show once you've implemented an EAP and see some evidence that it's being used, there should be a decrease in the amount of spend for health insurance. Now, for me, from a, from a disability insurance perspective, we do a lot of, uh, of preventive services, particularly stay-at-work services. And stay-at-work services are offered essentially by every uh, disability insurer, I believe. And we track not just how many people uh, accept and participate in our stay-at-work programs, as well as what their success rates are, but we also use our underwriting and our actuaries to identify, well, how many of those people likely would have gone on to file a, a disability claim or a workers' comp claim, and then to estimate, well, what did we save? How much did we avoid? And by having uh, historical data from uh, our customers, I can say, well, see your your short-term disability instance, uh, incidents, for example, was going on this trajectory. It was, you know, increasing or staying at this level. But here, when we started doing stay-at-work services, your incidence started decreasing. And so you can compare if you've got historical data, or we can compare against national benchmarks. And there are many times when I'll be able to show in a report that, hey, in your industry, short-term disabilities are increasing. But in your particular company, when you look at the impact of our stay-at-work services, they're actually decreasing. And sometimes the, the results there can be truly remarkable, where we will see very large changes in the incidence and, and also the duration of uh, disability claims. 
because we're doing preventive services or because we're working uh, when people do go out on disability leave, we're working to get them back uh, to work as soon as uh, medically feasible. So one of the things in your article that you you mentioned is uh, you encourage employers to, and I'm using air quotes because I'm quoting you directly here, uh, examine opportunities for flexibility, identify and correct toxic elements of their culture, mitigate burnout, and support workers' physical and mental health. Would you talk a little more about some of the toxic elements of culture that you've seen and how employers can fix them? Yes. Well, one of the most important findings of research research recently on workplace wellness is the realization that wellness is not solely an individual issue. Although individuals can and should practice wellness skills to maximize their mental health, the evidence suggests that organizational interventions are more effective at impacting employee well-being than individual interventions. The most com common toxic elements of company cultures I've observed fall into three categories. Incivility, by which I mean a tolerance for rudeness and even bullying. Uh, inequality and exclusion, meaning unfair treatment of employees and leaving some workers out of specific tasks, roles, uh, decisions, and so on. And a lack of psychological safety, such that teams fear they'll be punished or humiliated if they make a mistake or express a different opinion from others. All, all of these require concrete actions from company leaders. You know, if the CEO and other C-suite executives don't demonstrate a real commitment to civility, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and psychological safety, it's unlikely that those toxic elements can be eliminated. I believe that first, companies should include statements about those topics in their vision and their key values, and they should assess them on at least an annual basis with specific action plans to address any issues they identify. For civility, it's really mostly common sense. There has to be an expectation that every employee, from the CEO to every frontline staff member, must always demonstrate civil behavior. And, and that means things like being polite and courteous, but it also requires an underlying attitude of kindness and empathy. And some companies may need to do specific training or coaching to change a culture of incivility, and they have to hold people accountable for unacceptable behavior, regardless of their status within the company. And when I get to diversity, equity, and inclusion, I could talk for hours, but the bottom line question for me is, does your workforce, including every level of management, reflect the population? If your low-wage staff are diverse, but your management, especially your senior, senior management, isn't diverse, you may have a problem with equity and inclusion. I, I was talking with a colleague recently about a person he's mentor, mentoring, and he said they don't fit the usual profile of a person that gets promoted at his company. And he said he's been realizing there's a fine line between a company culture that promotes a specific type of employee and the one that's perpetuate, perpetuating inequity inequity and exclusion. And that really struck me. I've been thinking a lot recently about how do we distinguish company culture from institutional bias?
And as I write in my article, too many companies overlook disability status when considering diversity, equity, and inclusion. According to data from the CDC, around a quarter of adult Americans under 65 have a disability, but less than half of them are employed. There may be some CEOs who have mobility issues or who are vision or hearing impaired, but I'm not aware of them. And one subtle way in which people with disabilities are excluded is through inflexible expectations. For example, if your company requires employees to work on site, that may effectively exclude qualified candidates with mobility issues. And this isn't just a question of social justice. By not employing people with disabilities, businesses are missing out on potential workers and losing the contributions they could make. And that's especially important since we're facing what looks to be a multi-year labor shortage in the U.S. And I, I don't think we can afford to exclude people from the workforce. And finally, uh, going back to psychological safety, a lot has been written about that. And I honestly think that's one of the biggest uh, issues that lead to toxic workplace cultures. Um, but I, I also think it's reasonably easy to find information about how to create a culture that embraces uh, psychological safety. But one thing that's crucial in, in my opinion though is having supervisors, managers, and leaders who demonstrate appropriate vulnerability, whether that's disclosing their own strength struggles, um, which I think has become more common during the pandemic, that uh, leaders are more open about how this has impacted them personally. But it also requires expressing concern for the welfare of others uh, and acknowledging our own mistakes. And when those kind of behaviors are appropriately shown by leaders, it makes an enormous difference to the people reporting to them. I think what you said was uh, demonstrating appropriate vulnerability. And it leads me into my next question, which is really whether you think managers are confident initiating conversations about mental health. I've heard more people talk about socializing the concept that it's okay not to be okay and wonder if most managers feel comfortable asking their employees about mental health. There's a lot of fear about a misstep insulting someone or offending someone. So I'm curious to see if you have resources you'd recommend for improving that confidence and how you fine tune that approach. That's a great question. And I, I know when the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, was passed and when it first was implemented, I was a manager and I was literally trained do not ask what's going on with the person. You don't want to know. You don't want to be, you know, put yourself in a place of being vulnerable to being uh, accused of uh, discrimination. And although that changed somewhat with the implementation of the Family Medical Leave Act, FMLA, um, that's still part of, uh, I think, most managers' mindset. And to be honest, I don't recommend asking directly about mental health or substance use issues because, as, as you implied, that can feel accusing. And 
Uh, it also can lead to issues in which the worker believes you're asking prohibited questions about their medical condition. However, supervisors and managers should be trained enough to be comfortable if a team member discloses an issue to them. They need to be able to listen effectively and empathetically, and they need to know at least one resource to share with the person, which is, that's one of those times when having an EAP can be especially effective or especially helpful. So I always recommend starting conversations like this by considering what's causing you to be concerned. There's generally an objective observation that led to the question in the first place, whether that's related to attendance, productivity, work quality, relationship with peers, or other changes in an employee's behavior or appearance. So I suggest that supervisors and managers use that observation as a starting point, but then ask an open-ended question to encourage the person to share whatever, whatever they're comfortable with. For example, I might, might say, I've noticed that you've been in conflict with your team members a lot recently, and I'm concerned. What can I do to help? And when you ask, what can I do to help, that you know, demonstrates your concern, it gives them an opening, but it also gives you an opportunity to problem solve and offer resources. You know, of course, managers have to be trained what resources are, are available and appropriate, but they also need to be trained to know the difference between being empathic and acting like a therapist. So while we want to be caring and human with people we manage, we, we're still their bosses. There are also there are many resources for improving communication skills, such as the Crucial Conversations program. And it can also be helpful to offer mental health first aid training to supervisors and even team members. Um, for, you, for people who don't know, mental health first aid is an international program that trains lay people to intervene when they encounter someone who's in a mental health or substance use crisis. But there are other similar programs, such as the Notice Talk Act program uh, from the Center for Workplace Mental Health. So the main thing for me is making sure your uh, managers and supervisors are able to communicate well and know that really all that's required of them is to be uh, supportive and caring and genuine and to know a resource. So it's, you can't, you're not expected to solve the person's problem, but you should know where they can turn for help, even if it's the EAP or saying, you know, their, their health insurance. That's great advice. And I, I think that it would alleviate some concern to have that reiterated or communicated. You're not expected to solve the problem. In your article, you note that one strategy that may stem worker resignations is focusing on employee well-being. Would you talk a little bit more about this concept and give some examples of how companies have done this well, of course, without citing any names? Beyond an EAP, I, I think there are two key issues that companies have to address in order to effectively support workers' well-being. The first of these is to clearly identify what their workers need. And I, I suggest doing that through pulse surveys, but, you know, one-on-one -on -one, uh, conversations, suggestion boxes, things like that. But once you identify the person's needs or, or the workplace's needs, then offering benefits to meet those needs. But the second thing is to work with all your vendors to coordinate and ideally 
integrate your benefits so employees don't fall through the cracks. So when it comes to offering benefits to meet the identified needs of your workforce, management, management support is essential. I often say that every company should explicitly identify the well-being of their employees as a fundamental value of their organization. And one way to demonstrate that is by establishing a wellness committee with representatives from across the company, including frontline, frontline employees. A wellness committee can review the results of surveys and assessments, evaluate your current offerings, develop a wellness blueprint for the organization, and help prioritize, plan, implement, and evaluate new offerings. For example, if a company determines that their workers are struggling with elevated levels of stress, preventive benefits like mindful meditation, yoga, and resilience training can be helpful. Uh, exercise and fitness benefits have also been demonstrated to have a positive impact on stress levels and mental health. With respect to the second issue, that is integrating benefits, too often, employer-sponsored benefits are siloed, so workers don't know where to turn, for, to turn to for help, and they're at risk of falling through the cracks. While health insurance and pharmacy benefits managers are generally well-integrated, often because they're owned by the same umbrella company, other benefits usually aren't integrated. For example, if someone reaches out to their health insurance for assistance with relationship issues, they're likely to be told that health insurance doesn't cover couples therapy because most health insurance doesn't. And that's usually the end of the conversation. Ideally, though, they should be referred to their EAP if they have one, because EAPs can and do provide couples counseling. So someone who's looking for help with a relationship can very easily fall through the cracks there. Another very common example of this disconnect is with health insurance and disability coverage, which, again, is something I'm very familiar with. Most healthcare providers, especially behavioral health care providers, aren't trained to assess or address limitations and restrictions related to disability. I, I didn't know anything about that before I joined the, the standard, before I started working in the field. And a perfect example of this is a case I worked on a few years ago, although I've seen a number of cases like this, where the employee was involved in a traumatic event at work, was hospitalized actually for a physical injury, subsequently developed post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. His healthcare provider was treating the PTSD, but the employee was struggling at work because of situational factors that were re-triggering his PTSD on a frequent basis. He was, you know, back in the office where he had been attacked in the same situation. And luckily, his uh, HR department referred him to us for stay-at-work services before he filed a claim for disability leave. And a behavioral health professional with experience in disability and occupational issues was able to help him negotiate changes in his work site that allowed him to avoid being triggered. So, and to be very specific, he was given mirrors to see who was coming down the aisle towards his cubicle so he wouldn't be, you know, caught off guard and frightened. He was given a cubicle door. Uh, we gave him a white noise machine to reduce noises that might startle him because people with PTSD uh, have exaggerated startle responses. And then finally, the consultant helped him negotiate with his supervisor 
supervisor to have a modified break schedule. So anytime he was feeling a trigger or anytime he was feeling like he couldn't cope, he could take a break, uh, go to an area that was private and practice the skills that his therapist had taught him to to deal with it whenever he was feeling treated and triggered. So not only did he avoid a disability leave, but his employer benefited from retaining a good worker and helping to perform his best. And that kind of integration, I mean, we were lucky that the HR department thought of doing it, but ideally, it would be great if the health insurance and the provider knew, hey, you're also covered by disability insurance and you might benefit from stay-at-work services. And that really leads me into my last question, uh, which is uh, the value of trauma-informed management. And that's a concept that you outline in your article really nicely. And I'm hoping you'll share a little bit more about this concept and how many employers are using the approach and what it looks like in practice. Well, that's a a great topic. It's one of the things I'm most passionate about. Trauma is really uh, central uh, to my work as a therapist. And we know that people who've experienced trauma have a predictable neurological response to it, including a triggering of the fight or flight response that leads to exaggerated, usually emotional reactions to things that aren't actually threatening. And you may have heard of, you know, like, Uh, Vietnam veterans uh, who say, you know, they've been triggered or people who've been through trauma, dramatic events. And what they mean is their fight or flight response, uh, which is uh, governed by the amygdala uh, center within the brain, uh, that gets triggered. And at that point, they're really in survival mode. And when that happens, the logical part of our brain is short-circuited. And at the same time, uh, one of the communication centers in our brain is sort of turned down. And so we show a diminished ability to communicate clearly about what we're thinking and feeling. And so when someone's being triggered, they're feeling threatened, they're feeling that... um, they're in danger, they are more likely to become aggressive, but at the same time, they're not able to plan their behavior well, and they're not able to communicate well. So trauma-informed management uh, uses this information to suggest supervisory approaches that can help avoid triggering and re-traumatizing individuals. So first, you have to recognize that an individual is being triggered, and that is, they're responding to a situation in a way that out of proportion to the reality, uh, reflecting an issue beyond the present circumstances. And when you realize that happening, uh, the supervisor should back off, give them some space, but ask them to meet with you in a private uh, you know, situation uh, as, as soon as they feel comfortable doing so. Um, and once you're in private, again, note the observable behavior. Pretty much, pretty much like I suggested earlier, you want to say, I noticed you got really angry and you were yelling at your colleague. Um, and that, that concerns me. And you know, I, I'd like to know what can I do to help? 
So again, you're asking an open-ended question that invites people to share what they're comfortable sharing. And if they disclose an, uh, an issue, then listen empathetically, uh, be prepared to offer information about employer-sponsored benefits. Uh, but that doesn't mean putting up with abusive or uncivil behavior. So, you know, if someone was yelling, that doesn't mean they can yell at you. You still have to maintain appropriate value boundaries and ask them to do the same. So you, you want to help workers identify and appropriately cope with situations in which they're triggered. You want to use clear, concrete communications to help keep them on track when they're triggered. And you want to help put them, help them put their words together. You want to help them put their feelings into words appropriately. And while it was being discussed prior to the pandemic, the unfortunate fact is that many, if not most of us, have been traumatized in the past two years. And we know getting COVID-19 is traumatic. Uh, and so is watching a friend or family member struggle with it. Um, healthcare providers have been traumatized by the sheer volume of COVID-19 patients, as well as their initial inability to treat it. And I, I've had friends who have worked in hospitals for literally 30 years who say it's like working in a war zone. Um, and so hospital providers are, are traumatized. And then for many, the fear of catching COVID-19 has been traumatizing. You know, if you feel like it's taking your own life into your hands to go to the grocery store, that's enough of a threat to cause post-traumatic stress disorder. And then you put on top of that the isolation, sheltering in place, quarantining, uh, you know, social unrest, natural disasters. I live in Oregon, and the, we're still sort of reeling from the fires a couple of years ago and worried about fires coming up in uh, the summer. So I think we're all struggling and all on edge. And employers need to recognize that many of their workers returning to the office have been traumatized, maybe triggered by things such as you know, safety protocol, safety protocols, uh, conflict with coworkers, and so on, and have to be attuned to the fact that the, the workplace is different and the people that are coming back to it are different and we need a level of sensitivity to people's uh, uh you know trauma and people's reactivity and recognize that we're going to have to be more uh, uh patient at times and we're going to have to uh, give people more guidance around things like EAP or utilizing their other employer-sponsored benefits in order to uh, sort of come to terms with what has been really a truly historic and awful time. You know, we've, in my view, we've essentially been living through a plague. Mm -hmm. Well said. Yeah, I think I think that's not only great advice. It's it really helps to put some of those feelings and thoughts into word. I really appreciate your time today and your expertise in this incredibly important topic. I did want to mention that we will be opening your article for uh, public consumption, so to speak, uh -huh. uh, so that anyone listening to this podcast can learn more about some of these topics that we've talked about today. And I will also include some of the links to the resources that you mentioned, mental health first aid being one of them. So thank you so much for your time and your willingness to expand on some of these really important topics. We appreciate it. 
You're welcome. And thank you, Heather, for inviting me. I, I always look forward to opportunities to discuss these issues. I mean, that's my entire career. And I love being able to uh, to support DMEC and uh, the important work that you're doing, especially around uh, disability. That's a, a huge topic that I really hope more people become attuned to and uh, address and that you keep the great work you're doing, uh, supporting employers, uh, appropriately uh, managing people and uh, giving people opportunities despite disabilities. So thank you.